This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You are indeed. And wait, what? Yep, we all had that moment this morning because it's how we felt after President Trump signaled he would be willing to wait for another year before striking a trade agreement with China. So it once again, Jason, casting doubt on the likelihood of a phase one accord within weeks between Washington and Beijing and investors certainly feeling it and trading on it. Let's get the latest from Josh Wingrove. He's White House correspondent at Bloomberg News. He joins us uh, from the White House. So Josh, first of all, It feels like it came out of the blue, but part of me feels like we should be used to surprises when it comes to uh, trade and this administration. Yeah, really, it felt to me a bit like a riff on what he's been saying repeatedly, which is that he likes tariffs. He's in no hurry. He always says that, hey, China wants to make a deal way more than I do. Trump likes people to think that, you know. Uh, that, that he's in no rush to make a deal, and it's not just China. So whether this materially changes the trajectory, I think, is unclear. But it's just another sign that if you're, you know, if you're an investor or really anyone that's trying to track where these things are going, you cannot tune out for a day because the, the ups and downs keep coming. So right now we don't know uh, how close they are to that phase one deal. Uh, you know, there's actually been good signs, as we know, in the last week or two from the administration on that. Uh, of course, if we don't know about the phase one deal, we don't know about those December 15th tariffs that are sort of hanging over everything. Uh, So uh, a lot of unknowns right now, but Trump certainly musing today that, look, I'm in no real hurry to sign anything. And so, Josh, help us understand this in the context of this trip that the president is on to London for the NATO meetings. You know, his interactions with President Macron have been uh, widely noted, uh, it feels like, for some of their volleys, as it were. Uh, Help us understand what the president's mindset seems to be as he is on this foreign trip. Yeah, I mean, he so he brought in the media and fielded questions for over two hours today, I should add, in a series of three bilateral meetings. And one of them was with Macron, as you mentioned. Uh, Trump loves doing this. When he's faced with kind of tough decisions, he loves kind of throwing open the door and debating in front of the media. He did this a couple of weeks ago for an hour with a vaping issue. Um, so uh, he and Macron st- sat there and uh, you know debated the future of NATO. China even came up during that because uh, it was sort of... Uh, raises kind of one, uh, their potential participation in a new uh, nuclear safety, uh, nuclear weapons uh, treaty. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, these two have been kind of at odds. Trump has always kind of liked Macron, but uh, Macron's uh, comments around NATO and the sort of brain death, quote unquote, of NATO irked Trump, so he fired back. Uh, but I think uh, they've got a real policy difference, those two. I mean, Turkey is right. an issue. Trump seems to like Erdogan, and it, where that leaves us is unclear. Yeah, the body language was kind of interesting this morning. Let's bring in Gary Clyde Huffbauer. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Gary, how do you see the latest uh, trade curves, if you will? Well, Trump needs headlines every day, and he's got them today. And part of it was his remarks on on trade. But he, he blows hot and cold with respect to China. Uh, when he blows cold, it certainly chills the stock market. But his big uh, objective in 
2020 is to have a strong economy. And escalating the trade wars is exactly what's not needed to have a strong economy. So my prediction continues to be and has been that he will not escalate the tariffs. Uh, the December 15th uh, escalation will be postponed or abandoned. And that um, he will, uh, if anything, make some kind of deal, if not in December, then uh, next year. And so, Gary, what do you make of this idea of him saying, you know, I, I'll do this uh, after the election? Is that just rhetorical? Is that is he serious about that? How and how do you factor that in if you're if you're trying to to make predictions here? Uh, well, uh, my my view is that if he does not escalate the existing tariffs, which cover about two hundred and uh, $60 billion of U.S. imports sort of fade into the background. They continue to do economic damage to the U.S., but they uh, are they, they tend to be forgotten by the stock market. And so he, can, he could postpone a deal into, until 2021, but the reason he needs a deal in 2020 is the farm sector is hurting in this country. And a big part of the deal from his standpoint, from Trump's standpoint, is assured access to the Chinese market for a range of agricultural products, starting with soybeans. So that's why I think it's more likely there'll be a deal in 2020 and 2021. Josh, I do wonder how much politics is playing into all of this. And I also do wonder by kind of creating a little bit of turmoil and volatility, it keeps also the Fed kind of on edge a little bit and potentially keeping rates lower for longer again. Just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, I think so. I I think that Trump has made it clear that his focus is on impeachment and other stuff right now. He's going through the motions of trying to, you know, do the work of government, but clearly they're preoccupied by other things. Um, and the Chinese have a long-term strategy. So, frankly, you know, Trump says that they want to make a deal more than he does. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Some of their pre- pledges were timed to land after the election. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see a lot of uh, signs of, you know, a full conclusion coming in the particular short term. But we've been surprised many times before. We have indeed. That is the absolute truth. All right. Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent for Bloomberg, joining us from the White House. And Gary Clyde Huffbauer, non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He joined us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Let's see action. Let's see people. Yeah, let's see. What's going to happen in 2020 when it comes to venture capital investing? Because I feel like, Jason, WeWork, its failed IPO and its array of governance issues have really impacted the conversation around startups, private markets, and that includes, of course, venture capital. Let's talk about the VC world. David Spring is with us. He's founder and CEO at Runway Growth, based in San Francisco, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Nice to see you again. You too. Great to be here. So tell us, I do wonder about the lasting impact of WeWork uh, on the VC world. Has it changed things dramatically? Yeah, it has changed things. I'm not sure how long that's going to last, but uh, it has definitely shifted from you know growth at any cost to like path to profitability. Mm-hmm. You know that's a that's a big thing, but I do think that you know VCs really build companies 
so that they can be exited. So they're building a company so that it will please the buyers. And whether the buyers are uh, institutions buying on an IPO, which is very, very rare, by the way. That gets all the attention from the media, but on average, there's only like 80 IPOs a year for the last five years, so it's nothing. Um, But then on the M&A side, they're bought by corporate buyers or more and more PE firms are the buyers, and they do not want to pick up a big burn. So, you know, you really that path to profitability thing I think is you know is is here to stay but there will be a growth at a, a measured or intelligent um, you know spend if you will. yeah David one thing that a venture capitalist said to me in the wake of we work was this notion that it has changed and made much more sophisticated maybe much more intense conversations between VCs and entrepreneurs around governance. That essentially they're now able to walk in and say, oh, you don't want to do that? You don't want an independent board? You don't want to do this? Do you want to end up being WeWork? You know, that it's become real, almost weaponized to, to some extent in this conversation. Have you seen that? Have you seen more talk about governance at this point? So first of all, the governance extremes that we saw at WeWork, you know, and they are present in a few other really high profile deals that, you know, we all know about, those are not the norm yeah. in Silicon Valley. So, and it never has been, you know, it's only the, you know, the the hottest of hot companies with the most aggressive CEOs that even ask for those things. So, and, you know, really where I operate is in the, you know, the unsung heroes. Right. You know, and one of the things that I want to talk to you guys about is like this imbalance in the world of venture capital where there's so few exits. We talked about IPOs. There's only 80. There's less than 1,000 M&A exits and 2,500 new companies come into the system every year. So we're building up this giant mass and now it's up to about 25,000 companies that are you know venture-backed. They're not exiting. And in a lot of cases, they're outliving the ability of their venture firms to support them and you know, dealing with how to fund those companies that, for lack of a better word, are good but not great. Uh, that's what we're all about. And to get your point, Jason, those people have never asked for these crazy, uh, crazy governance, uh, you know, uh, abnormal requests. So among those, you said, was it about 25,000 companies, did you say? There's 25,000 so venture-backed companies in existence today. How many of them will ultimately exist in five to 10 years from now? Because I do feel like in the VC world, certainly in the early startup world, whether it's angel investing, people throw a lot of money at things that never come to fruition. Correct. So I do wonder of those 25,000 that might be struggling to get capital, that I love capitalism. Maybe some of them shouldn't be able to exist going forward. I mean, that's the system working, correct? Definitely. So this, you know, law of nature and survival of the fittest and all of that, it definitely works. I'm more talking about the people that deserve to survive and are not getting the attention because the venture capital business is so geared towards hitting home runs. Not even home runs, grand slams. Even with all that money that's sloshing around, Jason and I constantly have conversation about whether it's private equity money, whether it's family wealth offices, whether it's you know institutional money there's so much money that's looking to go in that area you're saying it's not it's not they all want to get into the unicorns you know the people that you guys talk about that's where they want to invest and there is a ton of money trying to fight their way into those deals but not the guys that are doing our 20 or 30 or 40 million that deserve to survive but they're never going to be an ipo so 30 seconds left 40 seconds how do you solve that imbalance 
Well, I think we're going to have a new class called Distressed Venture, mm-hmm. where people will raise venture funds to come in and capitalize on the opportunity to build these companies and take advantage of the weakness of or inability of existing investors to continue to support those companies. And then people like us that do venture debt, where we lend money as an alternative or a supplement to equity, we, we can help those companies. It does seem like we're in for some sort of reckoning is probably too strong of a word, but across the entire private capital spectrum. Totally agree. All right. Good to catch up with you, David. You too. Founder and CEO of Runway Growth based out in San Francisco. Spends a lot of time here in New York City. We're happy he made some time (laughs) for us. I'm doing Yeah, they're definitely doing fine. I mean, right, Jason, Amazon and retail, check, they got that. Yeah, got it. Amazon and streaming, got that too. Uh, Grocery stores? Uh, Grocery stores, got that. Amazon and the cloud, they got that as well. Uh, Amazon and servers. Hmm. Are we playing a game here? Yeah, we are. I didn't realize we were doing that. Yeah, that's all right. Good. Uh, But uh, servers, they're working on that as well. And this is a story that is in the current issue, or upcoming issue, I should say, of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Jeff Muskis is with us, senior technology and features editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio on this Tuesday. So, servers? (laughs) I thought they were all about the cloud. That's right, yeah. For uh, at least a decade now, uh, most Amazon on web services, cloud executives would tell you that uh, you'd be crazy to uh, store your mission-critical data on your own homegrown servers instead of on Amazon's cloud. You know, Amazon's cloud can handle everything you you might need for your growing business or for your massively sized business. But now, uh, as of today, uh, cloud chief Andy Jassy has come out and and shown off at uh, uh, Amazon's big. uh, cloud press gala, the Amazon Outpost, which is a server rack that they're hoping to uh, sell to the businesses that have been drifting towards Microsoft and Google's hybrid cloud efforts. So that you can go back and have those big server rooms, right? Right on on your own home turf. That's right. Yeah. The, the sort of sales pitch from the folks who've been developing hybrid cloud uh, for going on the better part of a decade now is that uh, you know the cloud's great, but it you know can't uh, do everything either as securely or in some cases now as quickly as you might want because of distance from the cloud servers to your own systems. And so, what's the viability of this business for Amazon? What are their chances of success here, from what we can tell? You know, it, they're pretty good. Amazon is Amazon, but for all that, they're not as assured as you might think, given Amazon's primacy and the you know what we think of as the regular sort of public cloud market, because. You know, they're now throwing off uh, such insane amounts of revenue and profit that they can afford to wade into insanely right. expensive businesses like this. But nonetheless, they are, you know, starting uh, a, a bit behind of their competitors. They are going to have to sort of count on uh, the the sort of flywheel of their own software and services being uh, a big advantage for them in this market, particularly because the outpost, as, as Matt writes in his story uh, today, is a little pricey for its class unless you count the, the various other Amazon tie-ins. Is this going to hurt their cloud business or no? Because we're seeing increasingly cloud continue to grow, and but we're also seeing people start to say, well, maybe I want some stuff you know, in my back office. Yeah, again, hurt here is kind of relative when it comes to Amazon <laughs> and the cloud because, you know, it's a question... Merely a, <laughs> a flesh wound. Right, it's a question of, you know, them growing 30% in a year as opposed to 100% or 80%. But, um, you know, that is a big change from a couple of years yeah. ago. And so, and yeah. It's been, I feel like, the Amazon growth story in many ways for a while. 
sale. Absolutely, yeah. For um, many years, it turns out, when Amazon uh, came out in 2015 and revealed their cloud numbers for the first time, yeah. it turned out that the cloud business represented more than 100% of Amazon's profit uh, in a given year, meaning that uh, you know the, everything else that Amazon does was losing money and the cloud was sort of saving them. Right. Um, uh, one of the things I love in this story is just a reminder of how incredibly fast people need things right. uh, to happen. I mean, this one thing jumped out at me. For Disney animators working in the Los Angeles area, a delay of more than 10 milliseconds between pressing a stylus to the screen and seeing the mark made the rendering software useless. That's incredible. Right, yeah. It's, it's something you, I guess, wouldn't think about until you have to worry about it, but that, yeah, if, if the... Uh, you know, electronic pencil doesn't behave like a real pencil, then what good is it to right. use animators? Might as well just use a real pencil. Right. And <laughs> and so, you know, these are the kinds of problems at, at scale that uh, Amazon is starting to grapple with along with its cloud rivals, you know, in, in tandem with, with security concerns. Right. One of the big things that's also push uh, government agencies particularly into the arms of its competitors in the last couple Essentially years. Essentially to say, just keep it all there and then you have it. You have it all in one place. Right. Yeah. Where, whereas they used to say, you know, blow up your old systems and go with, with what's new. Now they're saying, well, we ha our new systems can make everything interoperable. And right. so you can kind of have it how you want it. So who in the server community should be shaking in their boots? Well, all the guys who bet that their next move was going to be being this interoperable layer of uh, data center hardware, all the, the HPs and the IBMs and Dells of the world who said, okay, well, we're seeding the cloud field to Amazon and Microsoft and Google, but we can still make all the stuff we've been making forever. All right. Now that's less Fascinating. certain. Wow. Right? There's a lot, yeah. There, there's a lot to dig into in this story. Highly recommend uh, picking it up in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine out later this week, but you can get it now well, on And I just wonder how you identify Amazon. Is it retail? Is yeah. it technology? Like, what is it? I think it's just Amazon. It's just Amazon. <laughs> I think it's just Amazon at right. this point. Jeff Muskus, always good to catch up with you. Senior tech and features editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Just in the world. They do. I mean, yeah, no doubt. Well, about they're it. doing a good job they at getting are. there for sure. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Oh, Charlie Pellet. Charlie Pellet's dancing. Oh, man, I was getting, I was getting into it. Doing? I'm just thinking of being on a cruise ship going around. I, you know, me and Dave Wilson, Tom Keen, John Farrell, we'd be having fun with this one on board I a cruise ship. I totally see yep. Dave like, oh, we need a volunteer. We need a volunteer. That is a Charlie would come. That like, is never a conga line that I have imagined before. <laughs> anyway, Dave Wilson is here. It's hot, hot, hot. We're in a conga line. Chart of the day, conga line. For the line. chart of the day. What's I haven't up? imagined a conga line like that either, <laughs> if it's any consolation. We should do it. You know, the real question is what's hot, hot, hot? Well, French fries. Okay. You know that uh, you got to heat them up, obviously, or else you don't Just taste quite the same. Just had some last night. Well, there you go. Deep fryer. So I'll tell you, we had yeah. this story out yesterday on the Bloomberg Terminal that got my attention about how there may be a French fry shortage coming <gasps> because there was a lousy potato harvest this year. And there was one thing that the story was missing that I decided to address with my chart. Who benefits from this possibility of a French fry shortage? Well, you have to bear in mind, a lot of companies that are among the biggest French fry producers are closely held. Think about Cavendish Farms, which was mentioned in our coverage, McCain Foods, J.R. Simplot, and then you have Lamb Weston. 
ticker dun, on dun, this dun. one is LW. What's you take on? a look at how the stock is done. It hit a low in June, and since then, it's up 43%. Best performer in the S&P 500 Consumer Staples Index, which is you know food, beverage, tobacco, household products. One of the 10 biggest gains in the S&P 500. In fact, it's number five as we speak. It just goes to show you how much of a focus there's been on this company because, you know, if you're betting on French fry prices going higher, potato supplies of all kinds going higher, not a whole lot of ways to do it in the stock market. And Lamb Weston certainly stands to benefit from what's happening in the potato industry. So... If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Or if you want to have a fry. Yeah, exactly. Just saying. Contact Dave, right? Yeah, exactly. Or you, apparently. Or contact me. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe Janet Lauren. Or maybe Janet Lauren. Contact. She's here with us. Uh, She's got a great story on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's about the college beat uh, and how admissions is a little bit different in the wake of that big admission scandal. Hello, Janet. Hello, how are you? Doing very well. So tell us what's going on. It is early decision season uh, after all and a little bit different this time around. Yes, and I'm sure other kids are thinking about those January deadlines too. But, uh, you know, don't say something that you're not is a little bit of the theme here. Some schools may be doing spot checks. They may be doing it. They're saying, you know, please be honest. And, you know, if you're thinking, for example, well, I'm the co-captain, but I'm going to embellish and say I'm really the captain. Don't do it. Well, you know, what what, um, the dean of admissions at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine was saying, but there's nothing wrong with being the co-captain. You know, don't feel like you need to embellish. And, you know, it's you can talk about it's not necessarily easy to share leadership in you know, there's nothing wrong with being the co-captain. Well, and can I just say, bigger lesson here, don't lie. Yes, like, of course. Like, when did all of a sudden people start lying so much? Well, but there's a lot of pressure to be this fabulous yeah. applicant that every college wants to take. And, you know, you may need to look really shiny and impressive. And right. if you're the co-captain, are you really as impressive as the captain? One of the things I found very interesting in your story too around athletics was this idea of you essentially need third party validation at this point. Like if you're such a good athlete, especially in this age of blogs and local news and all sorts of things, you need to be able to provide some link that says, yeah, you're actually a legit good athlete. Well, and I think if you're competing in, you know, national tournaments, whether it be, you know, different sports, you know, it's out there. Right. And, you know, you just you can you can look up and see how any kid has done at this tournament or that tournament or how the state, you know, you really were on the state champion soccer team of Iowa or whatever the case is. It's not that hard to find. But, you know, I think um, admissions officers are more comfortable saying, well, it really is legit. Uh, Don't just take my word for it. But here. Which makes you wonder, like, I'm just curious how much fact-checking was done before. Well, especially in athletics, Division One athletics. Now, keep in mind, we talked about Pomona, which is Division Three, So, yeah. again, not as uber-competitive. But, um, you know, the admissions officers had relationships with coaches, and the coach has been there a long time. And, you know, they kind of took their word took and their word trusted them. Right. Because they didn't really have a reason not to. 
Right. Well, and there's another story on the Bloomberg today about Stanford and its investigation right. and everything that they did. And they essentially found that uh, Singer approached seven different coaches and basically got one. Uh, and that was sort of his uh, MO. Well, it's a story uh, that keeps going on. Obviously, it's going to have some long term implications. Janet Lauren, we know you're all over it. Thank you so much. Endowments and education reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers. Actions have studio. consequences. That is true. Okay. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Ryan Dietrich is with us, back with us, senior market strategist at LPL Financial. $706 billion in assets under management. Ryan joining us uh, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, it's been an interesting day just watching the trade. We saw a bunch of selling right off the bat. Uh, Concerns over trade once again, as the president seemed to indicate that we could take some time, might be another year or so before we get some kind of deal uh, between the United States and China when it comes to trade. But we're definitely off our lows. In fact, we're hovering pretty much near our best levels of the session. What's today? What is today's trade in your view? Hi, Carol. First off, thanks for having me back. But you're right. I mean, we, I guess it shows us the last two days markets can go down, right? We've been spoiled by what we've seen the last six weeks or so. But just looking at my screen right now, small caps, the Russell 2000s only down 33 basis points. Remember, there are a lot more small-cap names than there are large-cap names, and we've seen a little bit of strength out of small-caps over the last week or so with the Russell 2 making a new 52-week high. So to us, that's a good sign. Yes, we're having a well-deserved little correction here, and this could even go a little further. Don't forget, the first half of December historically is a little weak, and then Santa Claus comes to town fully aware that didn't happen last year. But still, that's usually the playbook. But seeing the strength of the service from small-caps today, that's encouraging, I think. And so... I'm glad you brought up last year because I do feel like I was overhearing one of our colleagues here at Bloomberg do a TV hit earlier in the day, just a few rows away from where Carol and I sit. And she was bringing up this notion of how much we really got, to use a technical term, just whacked in December uh, last year and sort of a level of volatility that we had not seen in quite some time and now have not seen in quite some time. What is to prevent us from seeing that? Is there anything out there that worries you about a repeat? Well, Jason, you're right. Just to put it in context, last year was the first year since the Great Depression that the month of December was the worst month for stocks. So it's it's obviously rare, but it did happen last year. Now, what worries us right now is kind of some of the similar things that probably most people are worried about. Trade, because trade deravels and falls apart. So much confidence revolves around trade with look at CapEx, capital expenditures. I know the recent durable goods number was fairly decent, but that's a big part. This is a 10-and-a-half-year economic cycle of growth. What's really going to kill it next year could be if trade spirals out of control. That is not our base case. I want to get that clear. We just released our 2020 outlook today, and we do still see more gains. But to put it in context, 
We've gained 26% real GDP the last 10 and a half years of this cycle. Okay, The average cycle since World War II gains about 25%. So this is a very, very long cycle, but the, the gains along the way with the GDP has just been kind of very weak at best, I think I'll say. And we think next year that's kind of still the playbook, maybe 2 2.5% GDP. But we, the president is up for re-election. We understand that. We just think there's so much to lose, and we still think some type of positive resolution with trade makes a lot of sense with China in the first quarter of next year. So trade deal or no trade deal, does growth hold up, even anemic yeah, we, growth next right. year? Right. We think anemic growth is kind of what we think is probably the play here, Carol, if we do not get a trade deal. I mean, honestly, you know, you look uh, look at consumption, right? Look at the consumer. Consumer makes up, as we know, 68% of GDP, running at about 7% consumption after the first 10 months this year. That's the best we've seen in years. The U.S. consumer seems to be ignoring, fortunately, the drama out of Washington and the drama with China. Now, eventually, could that turn if trade and manufacturing really continues to weaken? Absolutely, it could. But for this time frame, we still think the consumer is the biggest star, I guess we'll call it, of the global economy. And that still can help us avoid a um, recession, at least in 2020. So talk to us about putting together this 2020 outlook. It must be an interesting exercise. I also understand you're a podcaster now. I mean, you're just all over the place, man. Like, what's happening? Well, that's true. We do have a podcast, LPL Market Signals. Uh, John Lynch, our chief investment strategist, and I just recorded... um, the Outlook, I guess, yesterday, and we released it on the podcast. That's been fun. I mean, a podcast is just a new medium to get our, our views and market opinions out there. And, um, you know, we use Twitter and different things. But that's just, it's been exciting. But the 2020 Outlook, again, just big picture. You know, I kind of laid out some of the things we see. We still think stocks will outperform bonds. We do not see a recession. We're going to gain, in all likelihood, over 20% this year. S&P's of, what, 20, 23.5% as we speak. You look back at history, guys, the last six times the S&P was up 20% for the year. It was higher the next year. Nine of the last 10 times, it was higher the year after a 20% gain. So people are concerned that stocks are up a lot this year. That's bearish. We have to be down next year. Believe me, I'm a Cincinnati Bengal fan. They won a game, so anything is possible. <laughs> Literally player. anything is possible. Anything is possible. The Bengals can win a game. Thank you, New York, by the way. But um, nonetheless, you know, we just history would say this upward momentum can continue. We just don't anticipate another 20% next year. We think, you know, 7 to 10% is kind of likely. And if you get some good news on China and confidence can come back, in and get capital expenditures and companies kind of reinvesting in themselves again, hey, that can really ignite um, some animal spirits and we could have more gains, but that's not our base case at this point. Okay. So you're full of enthusiasm (laughs) for 2020. Um, When do we get a recession? Oh, Carol, I mean, that's the ultimate question. I know, you know people have been asking that for years. I mean, at LPL Research, we say bull markets and economic cycles don't die of old age. They die of excesses. And those are excesses like overspending, over leverage, overconfidence. They keep this kind of simple. We're not seeing the signs of excesses that we have seen previously. You know, what's the old Wall Street adage? It's tough to get bloody when you fall out of a window out of the basement, right? I mean, it's not like we're seeing spectacular 5% growth here. We're just kind of continuing to meander along, and we think that's probably still the case. Um, But if trade spirals out of control, potentially a Fed policy mistake or some of those things we worry about. But I've been coming with you guys all year saying, hey, the underlying fundamentals still look good. The credit markets look at credit spreads, high-yield spreads, investment-grade corporate spreads. The bond market, I know what the yield curve is doing. The bond market, if you look at credit spreads, is still saying there's not going to be a recession next year. And the overall participation with so many countries and small small caps all of a sudden participating, making new 52-week highs, we think that's still what you tend to see in a healthy market and likely a year from now, not a recession, and stocks will um, continue to be in this bull market. 
All right, so Ryan, you've managed to alienate all of our New York Jets fans uh, who listen in. So now I'm going to allow you to alienate all of our Southern fans and give a plug for Ohio State. Well, that's true. I am a I am a Buckeye. I grew up in Springfield, Ohio, and we'll just leave it out. They look pretty good, but I live about two hours from Clemson. So there's a lot of Clemson fans down here. And believe me, when the Buckeyes got beat by Clemson a few years ago, it was not a pretty sight. So I, I'd love to see Ohio State Clemson again, and hopefully, for my sake, it's a better better result. Yeah, it. exactly. That was not that was, that was a tough beat, as they 31 say. Thirty-one uh, nothing, as they remind me almost daily. Down there. So <laughs> yeah, you yeah, are. Hopefully, it's a little better. Yeah. You're smack in the middle of it down there. All right. Well, right. Uh, good holiday to you. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, Ryan D. Trick, senior market strategist for LPL Financial down in Charlotte, North Carolina, the belly of the beast when it comes to college football. Belly of the beast. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.